class is dedicated by David and Ida Schattenstein in the sacred memory of Rabbi Gavriel Noyach and his wife Rifki Holtzberg and all of the Mumbai Kedoshim. Also dedicated in the loving memory of a young soul, Alta Shula, Bas Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, Sword Love. This evening's class is also dedicated by Evan Haler in memory of his uncle Neil Lacker and it is also dedicated by Elke Rosenfeld in the memory of Rabbi Yisrael Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi may their memory be a blessing to Hainish Mosom Tzerura B'Tzerur HaChayim They tell the story about an American teacher who turns to her students in class and says, Can anybody tell me the source of this quote? To be or not to be? A Japanese girl raises her hand and says, William Shakespeare, Hamlet. Excellent, says the teacher. How about this quote? Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. This time a Japanese boy raises his hand and says, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, January 22, 1961, during his inauguration address, it was raining that day in Washington, D.C. Stupendous, the teacher says. How about this one? Read my lips, no new taxes. And another Japanese kid raises his hand and says, George Bush Sr. The teacher says, marvelous. But I have a question, the teacher says. Why is it that only the Japanese students know the answers to my questions? What about you Americans? You must be lazy good-for-nothings, spoiled brats, addicted to your iPhones and Blackberries, laptops and schmaptops, you know nothing of the great ideas and ideals of this country or other cultures. We must learn from the Japanese. They must be the greatest people on earth. And a student in the back of the class shouts, to hell with the Japanese. The teacher is dumbfounded. Who said that? The teacher screams, to which the student replies, Harry S. Truman, 1945. This evening we explore one of the great secrets of education. Why is it that some children grow up as mention, fine, respectful, 
dignified people who ask not what everybody can do for them, but ask what they can do for others. While others grow up narcissistic, obnoxious, lazy, self-centered, irresponsible. And their motto is not ask not, but to hell with the Japanese and many other people. A single change in the translation of a single word in the Bible presents one possible answer. Angels or demons, the secret of the cherubs, is our discussion this evening. The innermost chamber of the tabernacle was known as the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies. It was considered the spiritual epicenter of the universe, and it displayed nothing save two golden cherubs, or kruvim in Hebrew, which were situated atop the covering that veiled the holy ark containing the Ten Commandments. So you had an ark. Inside the ark was, were the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. On top of the ark there was a lid, a cover made of gold which covered the ark. That was known as the kapoiris. And on top of the kapoiris, on top of the covering, you had two winged golden cherubs. The source for this is a verse in the portion of Truma. Please bring up source number one in your curriculum. Right below the video, a PDF document. The Torah says in Truma, Vasisa Shnayim Kruvim Zohav. You should make two golden cherubs. Mikshe Tasa Oisam, Mishnek Tsaisakapyrus. You should make them hammered out from the two edges of the covering of the Kapyrus over the ark. From the golden cover of the ark, you should hammer out these two golden cherubs. Now, what did these cherubs look like? What, this, what did these two golden cherubs look like? The Bible continues, their wings should soar upwards, should spread upwards, hovering over the covering and the ark in which the two tablets of the Ten Commandments were. But what did they look like? So let's see Rashi. Bring up source number two, the most basic biblical commentator the 12th century Spanish rabbi and leader and sage Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki explains. And he says, Rashi, Kruvim, Tmus, Partsuf, Tinoik, Lahem. They had the features of a child. The two golden wings had the features of a child. You see, in Aramaic, Ravya means a child. Kiruvim would mean like children, in the plural. So this interpretation is how Rashi understands, based on the Talmud, what the Kruvim looked like. The winged cherubs had the features of a child. Interestingly, this was adopted by the English language. The word cherub means a beautiful, rosy-cheeked child. So, 
In summation, what do we have? We have an ark. On top of the ark we have a golden lid which covers the holy ark. And on top of that we have two winged golden children. And from between the two faces of these winged children, the voice of God reverberated to Moses as the Torah says. God says, when I will want to speak to you, I will speak and my voice will come through between the faces of these two golden winged children. These are the Kruvim, these are the cherubs. Now, this is not the first time the word Kruvim or cherubs is to be found in the Torah and the Hebrew Bible. We will find it later, but we also have it once before. Where, you might recall, in the opening portion of Genesis, the opening portion indeed of the Torah, the same word is used in what context? When Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden after they ate from the forbidden tree of knowledge from which they were supposed to abstain from eating. Take a look. Bring up source number three. The Torah says, Vayigoresh es ha'adam, He expelled man. Vayashken mikedem leganeden and God placed on the east of the Garden of Eden as hakruvim, the kruvim, the cherubs, hamisapeches, and the blade of the revolving sword, to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam is expelled from the garden, and on the east of the garden we have a revolving sword, a blade of a revolving sword. I guess it's the first electric blender in history. And we have the Kruvim. And they are guarding Adam from going back in to eat from the tree of life. What do these Kruvim mean? Obviously in this case, we would not say that they are beautiful, rose-cheeked children. Like the ones atop of the ark. I guess you wouldn't place angelic children right near the blade of the revolving sword to keep Adam and Eve of going back to paradise. So Rashi tells us what Kruvim are. Bring up source number four. Rashi says, God placed in front of the Garden of Eden as Hakruvim, Malachi Chabola, which means angels or agents of destruction. Even in modern Hebrew, a terrorist is defined as a Mechabel. Malachi Chabola are agents of terror. Oh, so now I understand. In front of the garden, God places the blade of the revolving sword together with the Kruvim, angels of terror, agents of terror and destruction to guard the path of Adam and Eve to enter back into the Garden of Eden. That is how Rashi in Genesis explains the word Kruvim. Now let us note the paradox. The same exact word kruvim is being used in two places in the Bible and the Torah. One in Genesis, the second in Exodus. One in Bereshus, the second in Truma. And yet their meaning from Rashi's perspective is radically contradictory. In one place the kruvim are angelic children. In another place the same kruvim 
are agents of terror. How can Rashi unflinchingly ascribe two radically antithetical definitions to the same word? In Genesis, the Kruvim are agents of terror, and here in Exodus, the Kruvim are angelic, beautiful children. Who are these Kruvim? Who are these cherubs? Are they beautiful, sweet, rosy, heavenly children? Or are they nasty, scary, frightening agents of destruction? Who are the Kruvim? Of course, the answer is that they are the same. They are the same cherubs. In a very subtle but powerful way, Rashi is intimating to us one of the great truths about education. The Kruvim in Genesis and in Exodus are exactly the same Kruvim, and that is why the same word is being used. The very same delicious, gorgeous, cute, endearing, kinderlach children can either be beautiful and angelic souls or angels of terror and destruction. It all depends on the context where these Kruvim are situated. It depends on the ambiance, on the environment in which these Kruvim are to be found. In Genesis, the Kruvim are situated at the outskirts of paradise, from where Adam and Eve were expelled. Why were they expelled from the Garden of Eden? We know the reason, source number five. God places Adam in the Garden of Eden to preserve it and to work it. And God instructs the man, and what does he tell him? From all of the trees of the garden you shall eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. And yet, Eve and Adam cannot contain themselves, and ultimately they would eat from that single tree from which they were told not to eat. Now let's analyze the scene for a moment. Here was a man, Adam, who had everything. Handmade by God himself, Adam was the ideal human being, handsome, flawless, brilliant, destined to live forever. He had found his soulmate in Eve without the need to work and search and date for years and then go to therapy to find out why he has so much resistance to propose and get married. Eve was a beautiful woman made and designated by God himself, a real match made in heaven. There were no other singles around to create any envy or jealousy to create any mistrust or betrayal. There was no stress of a failing economy, of a recession, no need to pay health insurance and life insurance, no problems of foreclosure and tuition bills, no issues with food. They were placed in a garden with an endless buffet 
of every type of conceivable fruit and vegetable, a healthy diet filled with nutrition. Nor was there any stress on clothes. They were comfortably without clothes, no need for new label designs, no need to fit into any environment. So their life situation seemed impeccable and flawless. But there was only one catch. God told them, you can eat and enjoy and partake from every tree in the garden. One tree I don't want you to eat from. And yet, this did not work for them. Somehow the fact that they had everything, but one tree was off limits, Adam and Eve could not bear. This one restriction, one catch, one limitation proved too much for them. They ate from it. They wanted it and they had to have it. They could not deal with the fact that there was something in the universe that was off limits to them. This marked the end of their paradise. It's in this context Rashi is intimating to us that Kruvim represent angels of destruction. A child. Kruvim are children. But a child who is raised with the notion that there is nothing off limits to him or her. That there is nothing more important than his or her desires and lusts. There is no cause worth abstaining for. There are no moral values which precede and transcend my existence. Everything I want, I must get. No limitations, no restrictions, no discipline. This child is likely to grow up to become narcissistic, self-centered, careless, selfish, indifferent. It will be difficult for him or her to build and maintain healthy relationships. For this person, discipline, compromise, self-restraint, kindness, consideration of another person, deep moral values and ethics becomes excruciatingly difficult. The potentially angelic cherub tragically turns into an agent of destruction. Kids who grow up in a garden... But the notion in the garden is that there's nothing off limits to you. Not even a single tree can you abstain from. And if you want it, you must get it. You deserve it. Such a child is ultimately expelled from the garden and is likely to become an agent of destruction who will paradoxically block himself and other people from ever entering into paradise. Contrast this with the second story. Same word, same children, same Kruvim. But it's in a very different location and context. Where are these children in Truma? They are situated upon the Ark of the Covenant, containing the divine tablets, containing the Torah. When a child grows up with the sense that life is not only about rights, but also about responsibilities. That there, ide- that there are ideals, ideas, and values worth sacrificing for. That there is a limit to selfishness. That power must be restrained. 
this child in his or in his her in his or her own way will become a beautiful graceful gorgeous kind and angelic human being in whose soul the voice of god can be heard the kruvim in genesis are angels of destruction the kruvim in truma are golden wings through which the voice of god reverberates it's the same children but it's all the context god gives each of us kruvim god gives he gives each of us pure majestic holy children pupils disciples students physical children biological children or conceptual children it's our choice whether we allow these children to become agents of selfishness agents of destruction agents of negativity people who end up exploiting abusing deceiving violating the dignity of others and the dignity of themselves people who live a very lowly lifestyle corrupt self-centered immoral dishonest and promiscuous or we will cultivate and polish their inner potential empowering them to become sources of light sources of goodness pillars of kindness to people around them to the world around them children whose dignity and sanctity will brighten up not only their lives but the lives of the people around them the same child can learn to declare to hell with the japanese or could learn to declare ask not what the world what the jewish people what others can do for me but what i can do to bring our world one step closer to redemption and it depends on what we do with these children do we place them in a garden which teaches them that everything is permissible or we place them on top of an arai on top of an ark saturated with the morals the ethics the values the majestic moral perspectives of the torah this above idea explains a very enigmatic statement in the talmud bring up source number 6 please the talmud says khulun kuflamates amad bays talmud khulun page 139b Haman min hatayra minayin. What is the source for Haman in the Torah? Meaning, Haman, as you know, was the Persian minister working under King Ahasuerus, who plotted and almost successfully executed his plan of genocide for the entire Jewish nation. At the last moment, his decree was obliterated, and it's his defeat. which will be celebrated very soon during the holiday of purim so the talmud in khulun page 139 wants to know what is the source for haman in torah in the actual bible in the five books of moses and the talmud answers hamin haets what is the talmud referring to bring up source number 7 after adam and eve eat from the tree of knowledge god speaks to them source number 7 vayoimer god says Mi higid lecha kiyerimato. Who told you that you were naked? 
Hamin ha eitsa shetzivisicha. Labilti achalmimeno achalta. Did you eat from the tree which I have told you not to eat from? And Adam, of course, responds, It wasn't me, it was my wife. Which became the timeless excuse for many a man. It was not me, it was her. Comes the Talmud and says, Look at the word, Hamin Ha'etz, from the tree. The word Hamin has three letters, Hey Memnun. The word Haman also has three letters, Hey Memnun. So Haman Minatayrim Inayin, what's the source of Haman in Torah? This word, Hamin Ha'etz, God tells Adam, from the tree that I told you not to eat from your eight. Yet this observation in Talmud seems very humorous and very difficult to understand. First of all, what type of question is it? Where is Haman in the Torah? Haman is a Persian minister who lives many, <laughs> who lives many centuries, millennia after the Torah is given. Why do you want to find a source of Haman in the Torah? And the answer seems even more humorous and far-fetched. Hamin means from. Haman, Haman is a Persian anti-Semite. What in the world is the connection between Hamin Ha'etz from the tree and Haman who is a Persian minister working under Ahasuerus and wants to kill the Jews? Just because they have the same three letters, Hey Mem Nun, doesn't seem to indicate any connection. The Talmud, in a rather elegant way, is conveying to us the psychological profile of Haman. Let us understand who Haman was. Haman was a man who was blessed with everything. Wealth, power, influence, prestige, a large beautiful family. He was the viceroy of the world's dominant empire at the time, Persia. The king commanded all of his subjects to prostrate themselves to Haman. So Haman lacked nothing in the world. Haman should have been a happy, fulfilled, serene, and joyous human being. But there was one thing that gave him no rest and no tranquility. Mordechai, the Jewish sage, would not bow down to him. He, play, he says it clearly. Source number eight. Bring up source number eight. He speaks about his success, his wealth, his prestige, his prominence, his glory in the eyes of the king. And then he says to his family, But all of this is worthless to me. Whenever I see the Jew Mordechai sitting at the gate to the king's palace, while everybody prostrates themselves to Haman and bows down to the Persian minister, there was one Jew, Mordechai, who never bowed down to Haman. So Haman says, everything I have is worthless when I see Mordechai. Now let's understand this. Here is a man who was blessed with everything a mortal human being can ask for. There is one old Jew sitting at the gate of the king, who doesn't bow down to him. Groise Gedula, big deal. Feltenishtai's guilt, you're not missing money. Feltenishtai's covered, you're not missing glory. You're not missing success. Everything you want, you have. Your ego is inflated beyond the greatest inflation. 
Everybody who sees you bows down to you. It is an honor for people to see you, to greet you, to have you at their function. The king himself seems infatuated and enraptured with you. One Ain Al-Tayyid, one Jew, Mordechai, doesn't bow down to you and Haman goes mad. Haman goes crazy. So the Talmud is asking a question. Haman minayin. Who makes such people? How do people become this way? What's the source of the profile, the psychological composition of Haman's identity? Where does it come from? Where can you find in Torah an explanation? The spiritual roots for Haman's personality, for his character. What do they make people like Haman? Or what type of therapy, if at all, can cure such people like Haman? People who have everything, and yet they feel that the Kolzeid and Oshavali, they have nothing. And the Talmud's answer is, Hamin Haman In a very subtle and abstract way. The genesis, the psychological genesis of Haman's profile can be found in Genesis. Can be found in Genesis. When God says, from the tree which I told you not to eat from, you ate. God places Adam and Eve in the most beautiful garden. He gives them everything except for one tree. Instead of being content with all they had, they felt that if they could not have everything, it is though they have nothing. You have everything. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. No. If I cannot get that tree, if I cannot put my hands on that tree, my life is worthless and meaningless. And ultimately, because of that one thing that they could not abstain from, they lost everything. They were expelled from paradise. If you are content with what you have, you will have much. If you want it all, you will lose it all. And the Mishnah, the Talmud, articulates this in a single sentence. Bring up source number nine. The Mishnah in Saita Daf Tesamet Bey says, V'chein Matsina we find, Bekayin, Koirach, Bilam, Doyegach, Yisoyfel, Gechazi, Afshalem, Adoniyo, Uziyo, Haman. These are all profiles in the Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible. You have Kayin and Koirach and Bilam and Doeg and Achisoifel and Gechazi and Avsholomon and Adinio and Uziyo and Haman. Ten characters. They placed their eyes on that which did not belong to them. What they were seeking, they never got. And what they actually had was taken from them. Each one of these ten characters, beginning from Cain, continuing with Kairach, could not feel content with their own place in the world, with their talents, with their resources, with their gifts, with their blessings. They needed to control that much more. And what did they end up with? They ended up with nothing. Not only did they not get that, they lost also what they had. That is the subtle source of Haman in the Torah. You have everything. No, I need that tree too. 
And this is the difference between the two cherubs. The same Kruvim are the same children, but in two very different positions. Here is a child who grows up with the lack of an understanding that there are limits to power and that you are here to serve and that there is something greater than your ego and something greater than your lusts and appetites and habits and instincts. There are values worth fighting for and morals worth sacrificing for. The child who is given that education on top of an ark becomes an angelic child through which the voice of God reverberates. The child who grows up without this, on the contrary, with the frustration of not eating from every single tree, this child ultimately ends up blocking his life and others from entering into paradise. You remember Tolstoy has a story. How much land does a man need? In it, the great Russian novelist tells the story about a greedy man, Pakan, who becomes obsessed with owning land. And finally he meets this family who owns enormous quantities of land and they strike him an extraordinary deal. For 1,000 rubles he can walk on the, all of the territory they own. He begins with sunrise from the hill, from the hill and walks the land throughout the day. Every single piece of land which he steps on becomes his, with one condition. At sunset, he must return to his starting point, to that hill from which he began his journey. The man is excited beyond words. He thinks to himself, these foolish idiots don't realize how much land they will be forfeiting at the end of this day. How much land I will cover today from sunrise to sunset. In his imagination, he thought of all of the richness and the land he will own at the end of the day. Sunrise comes, he's standing at that hill, and he begins his journey. He walks faster and faster and then decides I want yet more so he begins to run one mile another mile another mile and yet another mile and yet another mile and he's running and running swifter and swifter covering huge amounts of land with his foot with his feet in his rich imagination he already sees his bright extraordinary future and he's running and running and running, and then suddenly he realizes, Gewalt, I have covered extraordinary amounts of land, but the sun is soon going to set, and now I have to go back to the beginning, back to the hill from which I began my journey. I Gewalt, in a few moments the sun will set, and if I'm not back, it's all gone, I lose my money, and I don't have the earth. So the man begins running back and runs. Never in his life did he run so fast. He had to make it back. 
He assembled all of his strength. And with the last energy, he ran and ran and ran. As he's approaching the hill, he sees the family waiting for him. And lo and behold, as the sun was about to set, he arrived at his destination, right at the hill. The family was standing and started to cheer for this man who triumphed, who was successful. But at that very moment, from exhaustion, the man dropped to the ground and died. The family took his body and buried him in an ordinary grave. It was five feet long. And that was the earth this man ended up with. Five by two. Have a wonderful night.